Well, I'd like to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Our time in God's Word is going to come from this last portion in Luke 15, beginning in verse 25. You'll find that on page 875 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you'd like to borrow that Bible. While you're finding your way uh, to Luke 15, I do want to let you know of an invitation that I would like to extend to you. As you know, uh, 2017 is coming, and perhaps you are thinking and praying about new initiatives that you can take in order to advance your your Christ-likeness and your devotion to God. One of the ways in which we want to invite all of the church is to read through the Bible, the entire thing, next year together. And so we'll all be reading the same passages, all be reading uh, with one another, and we're going to send out an email to you this week explaining our plan and uh, the, giving you the Bible reading plan. And we would like you, the email will, will show you this, to respond to us, to let us know that you're actually planning to do this. We have an understanding of who all is, is participating in this Bible reading plan. Now, the Bible reading plan that we're going to use is from a ministry called the Bible Project. And what's unique about this ministry is that they not only have a Bible reading plan, they also have an occasional video that, uh, that explains the book of the Bible, gives you the context of the, uh, the book you're reading in order to give you a better understanding of that book, right? And I, what I want to do this morning, I just want to whet your appetite a little bit. I'm going to show you a portion of the video on the Gospel of Matthew. Since we're doing the uh, this Advent season, I want you to just watch a little bit of this. It's an eight-minute long video. If you were to do the first half of Matthew, you'd watch the whole video. We're just going to watch a couple minutes of it, and let's see if this works. The Gospel according to Matthew. It's one of the earliest official accounts about Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. The book itself is anonymous, but the earliest reliable tradition links it to Matthew the tax collector, who was one of the 12 apostles that Jesus appointed, and he actually appears within the book itself. For about 30 to 40 years, the apostles orally taught and passed on their eyewitness accounts about Jesus, along with his teachings that they had all memorized. And Matthew has then collected and arranged all these into this amazing tapestry and designed the book to highlight certain themes about Jesus. In this video, we're just going to cover the first half of the book. Specifically, Matthew wants to show how Jesus is the continuation and fulfillment of the whole biblical story about God and Israel. That Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David, that he is a new authoritative teacher like Moses, and not only that, Jesus is God with us, or in Hebrew, Emmanuel. And Matthew's designed this book with an introduction and then a conclusion, and these act like a frame around five clear sections right here in the center, each of which concludes with a long block of Jesus' teaching. Now, this design is very intentional, and it's amazing. Just watch how this works. Chapters 1 through 3, they set the stage by attaching Jesus' story right onto the storyline of the Old Testament scriptures. So Matthew opens with a genealogy about Jesus that highlights how he is from the messianic line of the son of David, and he's a son of Abraham. That means he's going to bring God's blessing to all of the nations. After that, we get the famous story about Jesus' birth and how all of the events fulfilled the Old Testament prophetic promises that the nations would come and honor the Messiah, that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But even more than that, Jesus' conception by the Holy Spirit, his name Emmanuel, all these work together to show that Jesus is no mere human. He is God with us. God become human. So you can see two of Matthew's key themes right here in the introduction. He's from the line of David. He's Emmanuel. But Matthew also wants to show how Jesus is a new Moses. So like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt. He passed through the waters of baptism, and he entered into the wilderness for 40 days. And then Jesus goes up onto a mountain to deliver his new teaching. So through all of this, Matthew is claiming that Jesus is the promised greater than Moses figure who's going to deliver Israel from slavery. He's going to give them new divine teaching. He's going to save them from their sins and bring about a new covenant relationship between God and his people. This Moses... I I hope you can see how helpful that's going to be as we read through the scripture. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to send you out a weekly kind of reminder every week 
of where, what we're reading for that week and with links of the accompanying videos that are going to help you understand Scripture. This way we can kind of keep us all accountable and all move forward and, and God be teaching this entire church uh, the same truths at the same time. And as I mentioned, listen, uh, God willing, 2017 is right around the corner. What a great opportunity would be for you and I, in fact, for this church to think about, okay, Lord, what, what can we commit ourselves to? that you might do a mighty and good work in us. And so uh, you'll hear more about that, and uh, I'm looking forward to being able to do that with you. In fact, why don't we look at God's Word even now as we turn to the Gospel of Luke and begin in chapter 15 and verse 25. Hear now the Word of God. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And... He called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We treasure it. It is your revelation of yourself to us. May you give us eyes to see and hearts to rejoice in it this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was in 1735 that the Anglican Church sent two missionaries to the prison colony of Georgia to preach to the convicts. Their brothers named John and Charles Wesley. Aboard that ship, there were also Moravian missionaries headed to Georgia as well. And John would write in his autobiography how he was amazed when the storms would rise up, how the Moravians were calm and would just gather around the center of the ship and sing hymns and have this peace about them that he did not have. When he finally made it to Georgia, one of the Moravian missionaries came up to John Wesley and he said to him, Do you know... Jesus Christ. Now, John was taken back a bit. After all, he was a missionary headed to a foreign land sent by the Anglican church. He was surprised that such a question was given to him by another missionary. And so John answered him, I know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And the Moravian persisted, saying, true, but do you know that he has saved you? John had never thought about that said to the missionary, I don't know. And for the next three years, he preached the gospel to the convicts in Georgia. Three miserable years of ministry for John Wesley. And to 1738, he sailed back to England. And upon returning, he went, as he said, very unwillingly to a Bible study by Moravians in London. He came to this Bible study. They happened to be reading the introduction to Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And John would write about that event, writing, about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John would say it was at that time that he came to faith in Christ and knew him as his Savior. You see, Wesley shows us what Jesus taught us. That it is possible to be close to God and at the same time far from Him. It's possible to know that Jesus is the Savior of the world and yet not be saved by Him as we see here in what we might call Act 2 of the parable of the prodigal son. It all begins, of course, in chapter 15, verse 1. We read now, tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And so we we have uh, 
these, these tax collectors and sinners gathering around Jesus, as we've seen, haven't we? And Jesus then explains why it is they're gathering around him in three parables of a shepherd searching for a lost sheep, a woman searching for a lost coin, and now a father searching for a lost son. And what Jesus is explaining is that when I receive these sinners to myself and when I eat with them, I'm not approving of their sin. I'm seeking them. I'm seeking that they might repent, that they might receive my grace, that they might be forgiven. I'm seeking the lost. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost, as we'll find out in Luke 19. Well, the Pharisees are not happy with this, right? They're grumbling. And so Jesus tells a third story. And begins in verse 11. You note how it begins. He says, there was a man who had two sons. Stories about two boys, two brothers. Just as two groups are gathering around Jesus, the sinners, of course, are represented by the younger son. Immoral, rebellious, breaking the rules, running from home, right? But it's here that he goes beyond what he has uh, already done in the first two stories, and he explains how he's reaching out to the Pharisees right, in the story. It, the Pharisees, of course, will be represented by the older son. And what we'll see, I think, are perhaps some of the, the kindest words that Jesus ever has for Pharisees are found here. Now, there's, it's, it's, it's still a punch in the gut, to be honest. Uh, but it's like a tender punch in the gut. Right? He's loving them as he is confronting them with their sin, right? They, of course, represent the older, the one who stays at home, the one who keeps the rules, the one who always obeys, and he too is lost. So please understand this, churchgoer, that it is possible, isn't it, to be good and moral and righteous and be lost. You can be near God And at the same time, be far from God. You can obey the Father's commands. You can live in the Father's house and still be stuck outside. And that's why I'm excited to preach this this morning because I think for most of us who we're going to identify with is not the younger brother running to the far country to live a life of immorality, but we're going to identify with the older brother who's close to home and who's obeying all the rules. And so we need to hear and understand there are two ways to be lost. There are two ways to end up in hell. One way is by being very bad. The other way is by being very good. Right? You can be lost by breaking his rules, and you can be lost by keeping his rules. So we should beware, I think. May God help us this morning. You who come to church and pray and sing and sacrifice and give, you may be an older brother. Or you may have some older brotherness inside of you. I do. I, I found it. God showed it to me in this passage. He may show it to you as well. In fact, I would suggest that the, you know, the older brothers, the good sons, are at a disadvantage. It's actually better to be really bad than really good. Because, listen, if you're really good, it's hard to know you're lost. Isn't it? If, if, if you if show up in church every Sunday, right, and you, you try to keep God's commands... It's hard to know that you're separated from God. It's more dangerous to be very good than it is very bad. Listen, if you wake up one day and you think, well, why am I all wet? What's this mud on me? And you roll over and there's a 400-pound pig staring you in the face and you have a massive headache and you have no money and you have no place to go, it is pretty obvious that you took a wrong turn somewhere in life, right? That's kind of like, okay, this is not where I wanted to be. You know you're lost. But the elder brother is in church every Sunday. And I'll tell you, it's hard to tell. And so may God help us. What are the signs of being an older brother? What does older brother idolatry, what we might call it, older brother idolatry look like? So we're going to look at the older brother this morning, identify three aspects of the older brother idolatry, and then uh, briefly at the end, show how God responds to this older brotherness, okay? So what is older brother idolatry? Older brothers, first of all, resent God's grace. Right? We pick up Act 2 in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. Just to catch you up, you weren't here last week. The younger, his younger brother runs off to a far country, squanders all his wealth after he cursed his dad, comes home. His dad receives him with just lavish grace and love and forgiveness, and he throws this big party for this younger son. Now, the older brother, he's out working the fields, long day working the field, and he approaches the house, and notice what happens as he approaches. 
he, he hears something. You notice what he hears. Look what he says. He heard, see it in verse 25, music and dancing. In other words, these are not Baptists, okay? okay? Right? Not, not only hears music, but he hears dancing. So I don't know what kind of dancing that, I don't know if that's the YMCA or what there's going on in there, right? But he hears it, right? There's some serious dancing going on. This is a massive party taking place, isn't it? And, and uh, there's this celebration that's going on. And, and notice, now what do you think he's going to do? That's his home. You come home, there's, you hear music and dancing, what do you do? You go inside. What's going on? He doesn't go inside. So you see in verse 26. And he called one of his servants and asked him what these things meant. Right? You already see a, a mistrust, don't you? There seems to be, um, you know, he's not, there's not a clear, clear communication with him and the Father. I think this might be another sign of older brotherness. You may talk a lot about the Father. You may be near the Father, but you don't talk to the Father. And he doesn't want to talk to Dad. So he calls his servant. The servant comes. He says, I've got really good news for you. He, verse 27, he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed a fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound, right? Praise God, master, your brother's returned home. Praise God, your father has received him and is celebrating him. And the expectation, of course, is for this brother now to run in and, and embrace his, his younger brother, right? I mean, this is what we've seen. Remember the shepherd, the shepherd finds the sheep and what? Everybody comes and celebrates or the woman finds the lost coin. She calls her neighbors over and they celebrate. Now we get the third story and the the lost son comes and everybody comes and celebrate except the older brother, as you see in verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. Jesus will use an interesting word to describe his anger. It might more literally be described fury, boiling mad. And in this, you could tell how different he is from his father, right? His father, remember, Father, this uncontainable joy, this indomitable delight. And then the older brother is swelling, mad, rage, veins popping out of his neck at the same event, the return of the younger. Right? You see how different they are. Could you imagine if the older brother found him before his father did? Right? Working out in the field. Right? You're a disgrace. What have you done? Show your face around here again. Get out of here. You don't belong here. You made that clear. He's full of anger and what? He refuses to go in, Jesus says. The, the music is in the air, but it is not in his heart. He stays outside. Just like the Pharisees, right? They're grumbling at Jesus as he eats with sinner. Now the older brother is grumbling with the father as he eats with this sinner, full of anger. And he said, well, why, why won't he celebrate? Why, why is he full of anger? Because he resents grace. He resents forgiveness. The, the father freely forgives, forgi forgives this boy after all he's done. And this young, the, the older brother's thinking, listen, I'm the faithful son. I worked. I obeyed. That my brother squandered everything. He shamed the family. He sinned. And what does he get? He gets a party? Are you kidding me? There's no penance. There's no earn your way back. There's no kind of work your, work your way back. It's just a party. And he is enraged. And you can see it very clearly in verse 28. Jesus continues, his father came out and entreated him. Look, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. You notice, by the way, he can't bring himself to say my brother. The servant says your brother's home. He says you're this son of yours. He hates it. And he tells us why. Because he's devoured the family money, devoured the property with prostitutes. And you can imagine this conversation, can't you? Dad, there's no way I'm coming in. He, he Listen, he's living it up while I'm at home doing his chores. Right? He's squandering money that our family's accumulated for generations while I'm doing everything I can to build the family uh, a business. He's sleeping with harlots and I'm still a virgin. He shames you and I do everything I can to honor you and you treat him like a hero? How can you celebrate such a person? He is grossly immoral, has a hateful, selfish life, and you treat him ever before. And I'll tell you, Dad, it not only diminishes his sin, but it makes a mockery of my years of faithfulness. I'm not going in. 
What do you think? Good point? A good argument? If you think it's a good point, you have forgotten that you too have received God's grace. That you, my friends, likewise are a recipient of God's grace. Here's the trouble. Because we obey and we're dutiful and we begin to imagine we're the good people. And they're the bad people. And we should be treated, you know, they shouldn't get what we get. Right? Listen, if you, if, if, many people, many Christians are never moved by God's kindness. Because they don't see God's kindness. Because they don't see their own sin. And that's easy to do. Even if you lived your life as, listen, I, I spent 19 years living as a prodigal. But now I got 20 years plus as, you know, living at home with a father. And it, I'll tell you, it is easy to go from he saved a wretch like me to I deserve better. That is very, very easy in our hearts. It's easy, right, to have a sense of superiority, judgmental remarks, right, bitterness, superiority to people of other sexual orientations or other gender identities or other classes or other work ethics or other races. It's easy to begin to think ourselves better. It is easy to get become bitter. It is easy to hold grudges and, and, and forgiveness becomes harder and harder for us. And before you know it, we are like Jonah who resents mercy and wants them to get what's coming to them because he has forgotten that he too is a recipient of the mercy of God. God loves to forgive you and everyone else who will repent of their sin. Do you? Are you like God? Do you love to forgive? Do you say, God, I, I want to be able to give grace today. Right? God, I want to be like you. And I'm going, I'm, you wake up Monday morning and say, okay, God. I'm ready to give grace. I've received so much grace from you. I just want to go out and I want to be like you and I want to forgive today. Now you, that's the Father. Or are you thinking, what are they doing here at church? You know what they did to me? You know how they hurt me? No celebration in your heart for them seeking God. The older brother is resentful, he is miserable, and he is lost, not because he is bad, but because he is good. One pastor says, it is not his sins that are keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father so much as his righteousness. The elder brother, in the end, is not lost despite his good record, but because of it. Listen, if all you can see is your own goodness, then, then mercy becomes alien, uh, it becomes offensive, and, and therefore, like you, you're like him. You have no joy at the father's kindness to the younger brother. In fact, listen, he can't even fathom what his father's doing. It, this is at the very heart of who the father is. And this man has lived with his father his whole life. And he doesn't even understand the core of his father. He, he spent his whole life with his father. And he doesn't even know him. He certainly doesn't desire him. So we see, secondly, the second sign of older brotherness is that you want the father's things, not the father. Look, look in verse 29. He says, look, these many years I've served you and I've never disobeyed your commands. You see how he understands his relationship with the father? Not as a son, but as what? A servant. I've served you all these years. I mean, who thinks that way about their father? Oh, dad, I've been serving you. I've been literally slaving for you all these years. He sees himself as a servant who works for a master, not as a, a child who delights in his father. I mean, you see how different he is from his, his little brother in this way. His little brother shows up and says, I'm not worthy to be called your, what? Son. Remember that? Make me a servant. And when he says, make me a servant, you know what the father does? He makes him a son. The older brother is the son. He's living at home, but he thinks of himself the whole time as a servant. In fact, he says, I've never disobeyed you, dad. You could tell his obedience is a misery to him. I obey, but it's slavery to him. And it is, it, it, you say, well, if it's slavery, why does he obey? Well, he obeys the father, not because he loves him, but because he wants the father's things. And just like the younger, he's just like the younger in this. He doesn't love the father, he wants the father's things. The younger thinks to get the father's things, you demand it and run away. The older thinks to get the father's things, you stay at home and do what you're supposed to do. Right? Remember the younger? Give me, give me what's mine. I'm out of here. 
I want, he wanted the father's wealth, not the father's love. The, the, the younger then returns, and it is the greatest day perhaps of the father's life. He throws a party for the entire village. He expresses his unimaginable joy. And the older brother is furious because in his heart, he, he wants to get the father. He, listen, he wants to get the father's things just like the younger brother. And he's willing to humiliate the father on the greatest day of his life. He, it's his turn now to dis, disgrace the father. He doesn't care about the father's honor. He doesn't care about the father's reputation. All, he doesn't care about the father. All he wants is what the father has, and he's been slaving all these years to get them. And he says in verse 29, where's my party? Where's my calf, right? You, you never even gave me a goat, right? A goat. And, and you see what he's doing? He's chew, like a goat. It's like, think, think Taco Bell, okay? Right? Fatted calf, think seven-course meal, right? And the fathers must be shaking his head and say, goat? Are you serious? A goat? Because I'll tell you, in that house is the best food and the best joy and the best passion and the best music and the best fellowship and the best dancing, and it's all in there. And what you want is a goat. And a goat, why? To eat with your father? No. You, you care less about his father. He, he wants to go to eat with his buddies. He says, God's not his treasure. He's just like the younger brother. I just wish dad would die so I could eat my goat with my buddies. One pastor says, heaven to him is a case of beer, goat, Big Macs, and hanging out with his buddies. Right? And so he stays close to the father, obeys the father in order to just get from the father. Just want to get from you. Now, what about you? So you're at church service today? Why? Are you here because this is what you do on Sunday mornings? Are you here because this is your religious duty? Or did the love of your Father draw you here this morning? I just want to be with God's people. And I just want to thank my God for all He's done for me. I want to hear from Him so I could be like him. There's a fable that once was told. It's not, it's not in the Bible. It's not a true story. It's a fable of Jesus. And Jesus says to his disciples, I, I would like you to carry a stone for me. And so all the disciples, they look around for a stone to carry. And Peter, you know, the practical sort, he falls, finds the smallest stone he could, he could get. And he puts it in his pocket, and, and then Jesus says, okay, follow me. And they go on a journey, and about noon, Jesus has everybody sit down. He says, okay, get out your stones. They put their stones in front of him, and he waves his hands, and all the stone turns to bread. And he says, now eat. And so Peter's lunch is over in a bite, right? And, and, uh, and then when lunch was over, Jesus says, okay, um, you know, I'd like you all to carry a stone for me. And Peter says, oh, okay, I get it. And so he goes and finds this small boulder, right? And he hoists it upon his back, and it's, it's painful, and it's going to make him stagger. But he's thinking, I can't wait for supper. And Jesus says, okay, follow me. And off they go. And around supper time, they come to a river. And Jesus says, okay, now I want you to all throw your stones in the river. And they all throw their stones in the river. And Jesus says, okay, come follow me. And Peter looks at him dumbfounded. And Jesus sighs at him and says, don't you remember what I asked you to, to do? Who are you carrying the stone for? Caring for me? Or caring for you? Why are you in church today? Why do you follow God? Why do you give? Why do you obey? Why do you pray? Because you love Him? Or because you hope He pays out? Are you like the psalmist who says, I love thy law, it is sweeter than honey to my mouth. Or is God to you a cosmic pinata? And obedience is how you beat him, hoping that one day he will pour down his blessings upon you. See, the difference between a Christian and non Christian is not whether they obey God, the, Christ, the difference is why they obey God. I like how Tim Keller, who, by the way, wrote a wonderful book on this parable that's called The Prodigal God. It's well worth your reading. And most of it's on the older brother, by the way. But he, he often tells this story of when he was in college. He took a music appreciation course. And he said, in the course, uh, I had to listen to a lot of Mozart. The reason he took the course, by the way, wasn't his major. It was an easy class. And so he took this music appreciation course and he started listening to Mozart. He said, I listened to Mozart to pass the test. And I wanted to pass the test in order to get a good grade. 
and I want to get a good grade in order to get a good GPA. And I want to get a good GPA in, in, in order to get into a good grad school. And I wanted to get into a good grad school in order to get a good job. And I wanted to get a good job in order to get good money. And so in short, he said, I listened to Mozart in order to get money. And then he says, now 30 years later, I would gladly give up money to listen to Mozart. Right? Both times he's listening to Mozart, but for radically different reasons. The first time he listened to Mozart for what Mozart would give him. Now he listens to Mozart for Mozart. Is God simply useful to you? Or do you find him beautiful? The older brother, oh, he'll read his Bible, he'll go to church, he'll pray, but it is slavery to him. He is trying to get God, something from God. He, he expects his goodness to pay out, and when it doesn't, he's enraged, right? Infuriates him in light of all his work. His wicked brother gets the party, and he does not. Consider, thirdly, the third sign of older brotherness. The older brother is angry at hardship, right? If you are a servant and you don't get what you have earned, you rightly will get angry. This is how he sees himself. How do you, how does one, listen, I don't know, how does one get a party around here? Because it's clearly not by obeying. Right? And if all my work doesn't give me a party, then what good is obedience? If God doesn't do this or give me that, then what good is it being a Christian? And you know people like this, don't you, who have one day followed Christ and then life kind of falls apart and they think, well, that's the way God's going to treat me. If that's the way life is going to go, what's the point? I'll just, you know, I'll sleep in on Sundays and I'll do my own thing. Right? This is, this is what older brothers do. They think a good life, uh, if you're good, then you should get a good life. And you get angry when you don't. I was at a funeral a couple months ago, and it was a tragic funeral, a, a terrible, terrible event. And the, the sanctuary is literally filled with hundreds of non-believers. And the pastor stood up, and he said to them, he says, I get it. Get mad at God. It's okay. Right? It's okay. And you know what, what he was teaching them? I understand it's hard. He's trying to relate to these people. But what he's teaching them is that, that God owes us something better than what we have. And if he doesn't give it to you, then be angry at him. That's appropriate. See, that's what older brothers do. You do your best, you sacrifice, and trouble comes, and you think, I deserve better than this. Right? But listen, if you understand the gospel, you understand, no, you, whatever it is, you do not deserve better. You actually deserve worse. Right? And everything you get is better than what you deserve. It's like we saw in Luke 14. Life is better as a beggar. Right? Beggars cheer at every dish. Right? Doesn't matter what it is. Right? They celebrate that which they, uh, that God puts in their life. Right? The, the, we begin to compare ourselves. Right? I'm good. They're not. Why is their life so much better than mine, right? When I'm a follower, what's the matter with you, Father? How can you do this to me? At least give me a goat, right? Give me what I deserve. I I love it. I I think C.S. Lewis captured this beautifully in his novel, uh, The Great Divorce. Have you read this book? A wonderful book. And and, uh, we don't read it to learn theology, by the way, and you'll see why in a moment. But the book is about a busload of people uh, from hell go to the outskirts of heaven. And they meet the people they knew who lived on earth and are now in heaven, and the people in heaven who he calls the bright men are trying to urge the people in hell to come to heaven whom he calls the ghosts. And so the ghost begins, I'll just read you a portion of it. The ghost says, look at me now, slapping its chest. But the slap made no noise. I'd gone straight all my life. I didn't say I had no faults far from it, but I'd done my best all my life, see? I'd done my best by everyone. That's the sort of chap I was. I never asked for anything that wasn't mine by rights. That's the sort I was. The bright man said, it would be better, it'd be much better not to go on about that now. Who was going on? I'm asking for nothing but my rights. I've got to have my rights, same as you, see? Oh no, I haven't got my rights, or I should not be here. And you will not get yours either. You'll, you'll get something far better. That's what I say. I haven't got my rights. I've done my best. I've never done anything wrong. Why, why, what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anybody's bleeding charity. Oh, then do. 
The bright man said, at once ask for bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking and nothing can be bought. That may be very well for you, he said. If they choose to let in a bloody murderer because he makes a poor mouth at the last moment, that's their lookout. But I don't want charity. I'm a decent man. If I had my rights, I'd have been here long ago and you could tell him I said so. Lewis says it was almost happy now that it could, in a sense, threaten. That's what I'll do, it repeated. I'll go home. I didn't come here to be treated like a dog. Damn and blast the whole pack of you. In the end, still grumbling, but also whimpering, it made off. See, that's the elder brother, isn't it? I just want my rights. And if you don't give me what I've earned, I'll walk away. And the the tragic irony is that the older brother who stayed at home is farther from the father than the younger brother ever was because he's blind to it. He doesn't see himself. And you look, you think about the son who left far country. He's now inside. The older brother who never left is outside, full of anger, bitterness, and resentment. And then God comes, the father comes, and he responds. And I just want to show you briefly this picture of God's heart. It's a picture of the gospel, of the tender love of God, of how he responds to this self-righteous older brotherness. The first thing I want you to note is that the father leads, or you might put it this way, the father takes initiative because the father gets word that the son's not coming in to the house. Now, this is one of those terrible moments, right? Where there's a big family dinner and someone throws a fit and storms off from the table and runs to the living room and everybody's kind of sitting there kind of eating, but no one's talking and it's awkward, right? And I know you've never experienced anything like that, but just kind of imagine what that would be. It's like the sisters getting a shouting match right before the wedding, right? It's really, really bad. It's terrible timing. It's awkward. And you think, what's the father going to do? Maybe he'll send a servant out to him. Maybe he'll yell through the window, Maybe he'll say to the people at the table, oh, that whiny little brat again, right? Let's just let him be outside and pout and we'll enjoy dinner together. He doesn't do that, does he? He does what he did with the younger. He goes out to him. He takes initiative. You see that verse 28? But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out. And, and treated him, right? Because he has another son lost in sin. And once again, the father will not wait. He goes looking to give grace and he will humiliate himself once again to do it, right? The brother is publicly shaming his father. It is a public insult to his dad. And once again, the father is willing to be humiliated, to be reconciled to his sinful son. Just like God will be humiliated to reconcile himself to you. Christ humiliation on the cross. He will do so in order to save the lost, whether they be rebels or whether they be righteous. Right? He came to you. Didn't He? He came seeking. I so appreciate my brother Tim's prayer for us this morning. It meant so much to me. The Father came for us. He came to get us. Right? He leads. Secondly, the Father pleads. You see that in verse 28? He came out and what? Entreated Him. Right? So what do you think? Does He go out and approach Him? Like, listen, boy, if you don't get in that house, I will make your life a living misery. Now get your tail in there, right? Is that what he does? He treats him. Literally pleads with him. You see, tenderness and gentleness. Don't do this, son, please. Come, you're my son. Join the celebration. Come in. You, remember, the, see how opposite the father is from what the, the older son thinks he is. He says about his relationship, he gives me all these commands and command and command and I just obey them. And the father comes and he has every right to command him. Every right to say, I am the father here. This is my house. You will do as I say. But he doesn't command. There's just an appeal. They're just pleading. Right? I mean, and I don't know about you. This is where I see my own sin. I kind of want him to command. I kind of want him to grab him by the shirt and say, you are coming in this house right now and you are going to put a smile on your face and you are going to sit in that chair because we as a family are... Right? That's what I want. That's sin, I think. God help me. No, I don't think I know. Why doesn't he command him? Because he does not want the obedience of a servant. He wants the love of a son. 
He doesn't simply want heartless submission. He wants a relationship. He wants love. Just as Paul in his letter to Philemon said, Though I could command you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you. Same word, appeal, is here used here as entreat or plea. For love's sake, the Father pleads. And you, can see, you see what's happening here. As, as the Father's doing this, Jesus is doing this with the Pharisees. He's pleading with them to come in, isn't he? Right? He's pleading. Well, I want you to, I want to eat with sinners and you guys. We all want to eat together. Won't you come in? You see what Jesus is doing? And so what this teaches me is, listen, beware, my, my Christian brothers and sisters, beware of offering grace to everyone but the self-righteous. If, if you read this story and your heart's reaction is a disdain for the older brother, then you are an older brother too. Right? Why? You're an older brother who feels superior to this older brother. And you want the father to yell. You don't want him to get grace. And you've forgotten the grace in which you've received. I see my own sin here. God, help us. He pleads with him. Maybe he's pleading with you now. For some, you know, the father runs out and jumps on them. This is, this is my story. I never got the subtle pleading of the argument. He just tackled me one day when I walked into a church. But for other people, he quietly and patiently and week after week argues and persuades and pleads like he did with his older brother. Maybe he's pleading, I hope. I hope there's some he's pleading with now. You know how you know he's pleading with you now is you get a growing sense of your lostness. There's a growing sense in his, I want to go home. I don't feel like I'm home. I want, I want to go home. That's God. If you hear, feel that in your heart right now, God is doing that. He pleads. Thirdly, the father affirms. Okay? So the boy, as we've seen, has understood himself as a servant, not a son. We saw that in verse 29. Look, these many years he says, I've served you, never disobeyed you. Notice how his father responds to him, right? He says, I'm your servant. The father in verse 31, and he said to him, son, son. His boy says, I'm your servant. Father says, you're my servant. You're my son. And he does not use the typical word for son. He, He doesn't use the word for baby, but he doesn't use the word for son. He used the word that you would use to describe a toddler, little boy, child. It's the Greek word technon. And I can almost imagine that, that there are tears in the father's eyes when he says, my son. Because this word carries memories of when, when this boy was at his knee, right? Growing up in his house. And how have we, how's the relationship deteriorated like this, right? And, and, and this angry man sitting outside was once this, this daddy's little boy. And he says, I've been serving you for decades. I've never disobeyed you. And he says, no, no, you're my son. You're not my servant. You're my child. And my brothers and sisters, you too are his son. You too are his daughter. I want you to hear this this morning the father saying, My child, come in. Come home. Come feast at this celebration of mercy. And you you know what it means to be God's child? It means you don't earn his blessings. He gives them to you freely. Right? Children don't earn anything. They're given too because of their position. Consider fourthly, the father blesses. Look what he, read on with verse 31. He says, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. So he says two things. First of all, you're always with me. So how does God answer the religious person's request for things? Like goats and parties with your buddies. He says, you know how he responds? He says, you have me. You're always with me. You want to go in parties, but, but you have, you've had me all this time. Right? That's what it means to be his son. I'm your father. You're with me. See, the greatest problem with this boy is that he worked alongside the father and he lived in the father's house and he ate at the father's table, but he found no delight in any of it. And that's my fear is that throughout this country and this world, people are filling pews today and the father comes and says to, to them, I am with you. You are always with me through the spirit and it means nothing to them. There's no joy in that. 
because He's not their joy. He, he's not their treasure. My, my friends, pray that God and not His blessings would be your joy. That God would give you a heart for Him. That you would delight in Him and who He is and your fellowship with Him. I can tell you based on the authority of the Word of God, He is always with you. Always. He never leaves you. He'll never forsake you. May God help us to know it and to delight in it. He says, okay, I'm going to bless you. I'll bless you with my presence. But He doesn't stop there. Though being in God's presence is the greatest joy, He still gives. Because He goes on and says there in verse 31, all that is mine is yours. Right? You don't earn this. You don't earn a calf. You don't earn a goat. You don't earn a party. It's yours. You're my son. Everything I have is yours. And that's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian means you're an heir. By right, this world is yours. And one day you'll inherit it. A new perfect earth, right? It's God's blessing to us. And and when you walk into and God says, here's your earth, it's yours. You, you do not say, okay, well, I worked pretty hard for this. It's about time you paid out. You didn't earn any of it. You get it because you're His child, because He has adopted you. He says, everything I have. Can you hear God say that to you? Isn't that amazing? God say, everything I have is yours, my child. It's yours. And you see, lastly, the Father celebrates. <laughs> Verse 32. It was fitting to celebrate. And be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. See, the Father will not let the accusation stand that it is sinful to celebrate. In fact, he says it is right to celebrate. Literally, it is necessary to celebrate. And isn't this not the theme of Luke 15? What is the theme of Luke 15? God celebrating, rejoicing, and giving grace. That's what he's doing. God just wants to give it. God says it is necessary to celebrate. It's who I am. I wonder, do you like, as we've thought now for four weeks, do you like to give grace? Do you rejoice when God gives grace? Do you want to give grace? Or do you have a little older brother in you? Maybe maybe God in his kindness to you has shown you that you're more like this boy than you perhaps thought. You have a little bit of this idolatry in your heart. Maybe you have a lot of it. How do, you, how do you get rid of it? Well, you, you look to Jesus. I find it interesting that he says in verse 31, all that is mine is yours. It, of course, that, I mean, that's, that's literally true in this story. Remember, the younger brother has already received all his inheritance. So all that's left is, is the older brother's. Everything's left is, is his. All the robes, all the rings, all the fatted calves and sandals, they're all the older brother's inheritance. And therefore, listen, the only way to bring the younger brother back into the family is at the older brother's expense. Right? The younger brother, he, he, didn't, he didn't pay anything. He had nothing. His restoration into the family is entirely at the expense of his older brother. Now, Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees to see themselves. And therefore, the younger brother gets a, a, a Pharisee for his older brother. But, but we have an older brother, and he's no Pharisee. Who do we get as an older brother? Jesus. Right? Jesus is our older brother. And our restoration, I tell you, is entirely at his expense. The father will bring us in, but only through the sacrifice of our older brother. And it cost him a lot more than a robe and a ring and a, and a big fat cow. Right? It cost him his life. It cost him everything to pay our debt. He was nailed to a cross. And when he's nailed to a cross, you know what he tells us? He tells us, listen, I say this with love in my heart. You are more sinful than you ever imagined. Whether you're righteous or rebellious, you are worse than you ever imagined. You are so bad that the Son of God had to die to pay your debt. But He was glad to do it. And therefore, you are more loved than you ever dared hope. You see, the Gospel puts us in the dirt. And once we're in the dirt, it lifts us higher than we ever imagined. And I'll tell you, the more you see that, 
My brothers and sisters, the more I see it, the more you see it, the, the more we understand who we are in God, the, the, that we'll find anger and judgmentalness and self-righteousness and a sense of superiority and all the older brotherness in our hearts fading away. Just replaced with this grateful love and this abounding joy. This is what God offers us. In fact, you notice that's the end of the story. And we're left thinking, what, what happens, right? Does he remain outside with the slaves or does he sit at the table as a son? We don't know. Jesus doesn't finish the story. He just abruptly ends with the father saying, listen, it's right to do this. And, and you know why he doesn't finish the story? Because there was a day in which he's talking to Pharisees and he's literally inviting them in, right? They're the elder brothers. He's inviting them to come to eat with him and, and they have to finish the story. The elder, the, the Pharisees have to f- finish. Are they going to come in? The story's left open for them. And, and I, I believe the story's left open for, for us. I don't know if there's anybody angry standing on the outside here this morning. And think that I'll one day I'm going to stand before God. I'm going to say, God, I, I belong in this place. But look what I've done. I have been serving you all these years. Anybody like that? If you're like that, I hope God is pleading with you. That you would leave the, the front porch of your merit and come in and feast at the table of mercy. The Bible says if that you you bow your knee to Jesus as Lord, you confess through the mouth that He is your Lord, believe in your heart that He has gone to the cross and died for your sin, rose on the third day, He says, then you are saved. It's just through faith. It's not through, it's just receiving mercy through repentance and faith. May God even work that in your heart, even now. Our Father, we are so thankful that you are patient with elder brothers like me and and maybe like some of my brothers and sisters here. Forgive me, please. Forgive all those who have to fight this self-righteousness. Help us to see the gospel. Help us to see who we are through Christ, through the gospel, that we might be like you. Help us tomorrow to wake up after spending four weeks in Luke 15 and say, God, I want to give grace to them, that we might be like you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.